You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Wine prices have never been higher. Following an initial stumble at the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020, the wine market has since recovered and surpassed 2019 levels. Wine was one of the few luxury pleasures not affected by the pandemic. Many have attributed it to the riches built up from a decade-long bull market, which increased the pool of people who have the means to indulge their passion for fine wine. Wine is also starting to attract big money from investors. In the first half of this year, fine wine has significantly outperformed global equities and most commodities. Live wine auction revenues from major houses also hit record numbers. My guest today on The Luxury Item is Irvin Goldman. CEO of Acker Wines, America's oldest wine merchant and the largest wine auction house in the world. Irvin joined as CEO of Acker in 2017. Previously, Irvin was a financial executive with more than three decades of experience in investment banking, working for Solomon Brothers, Credit Suisse First Boston, Cantor Fitzgerald, and J.P. Morgan Chase. Welcome to the luxury item, Irv. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. Okay, let's jump right in. Acker has been in business for two centuries. It survived depressions, recessions, prohibition, and now pandemics. That's quite an achievement. I mean, there are very few American companies that are 200 plus years old. I could think off the top of my head, perhaps Brooks Brothers, Jim Beam, JP Morgan Chase, DuPont maybe. So what do you attribute to longevity of the Acker brand? Well, I think Acker was... Uh, one of the first companies that specialized, at least in the uh, as a luxury brand and a company that serviced uh, the elite in society, um, with and being a purveyor of very specialty goods from uh, not only the country but all over the world, um, and it. You know, it it had gained a reputation of client service and access to fine and rare goods that uh, the wealthiest people in society wanted. And I think it maintained that ethos throughout, you know, its history. And, you know, whether it was um, uh, fine food, fine tobacco, fine wine and um you know over it it just became uh really well known uh for a place to get special specialty items and you know all our goods were uh you know on the titanic so when the titanic went up went down you know when there were stories there were stories that like there were goods for acker so they're kept through history being these events that were um, reinforcing the brand as, um, as, as being that specialty high-end purveyor of goods. And, you know, there were either, even in famous sports figures, whether it was Babe Ruth, uh, Joe DiMaggio, um, you know, people that, you know, it became known bought things from Acker. And I think that sustained itself. And, you know, it's interesting past prohibition, you know, Acker, you know, 
went into bankruptcy. And then at a bankruptcy, uh, the, the people that uh, bought it, the Capon family, um, you know, they took that branding and applied it to just wine. And we were able to build a very successful retail operation and ultimately an auction business of fine and rare wine. So I, I think it's just really been part of the ethos of the company to be a purveyor of very fine goods. And, you know, it's interesting because even, you know, you see certain brands, uh, I, I think the, the, the most obvious that comes to mind would be Marvel that went into bankruptcy and then, you know, Disney bought them and look what happened to the brand. Right. And they started making movies and stuff like that. So when you have a good brand, you know, there are people that can take that brand and, you know, innovate and do things with it. Um, and I think that it was very smart to focus on the fine and rare wine business post the prohibition. Um, and it, it's enabled to, you know, the company to, you know, do over $200 million of sales in, in fine and rare wine. And when did it start getting into the auction business? So it started getting into the auction business in, you know, the early part of the 2000s and started to really kick in around 2008, really. And that was, uh, that was by the third generation of the Capon family who had basically bought the brand out of bankruptcy post-prohibition and John Capon who uh, basically, you know, with his dad started an auction business and then it was really was John that uh, built it into a, a global auction player. And you joined as CEO and minority owner of Acker in 2017, I believe, and coming from a long career in the finance industry, how did this opportunity come about? First of all, were you already a wine collector? So the opportunity came about because um, basically through my brother, who was one of the largest uh, clients of Acker's, and he was a huge wine collector. I had not been a wine collector previous to joining Acker. The uh, Cape Bond family had a need to raise capital. And I was at the time looking to invest and go in and run and uh, grow uh, a business. I was really focusing on healthcare and tech at the time. I went to take a look at the opportunity and here I am five years later. So that's how it came about. It, it was really a reference from a, a major wine collector who happens to be my brother. So, so when you took over as CEO and first looked over Acker's business, where do you see the potential for growth and how do you act on it? When I was analyzing Acker, I, I think there were three major things. One was the brand and what I thought the potential was to 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 grow the brand and and I, I really think the brand was undervalued. 
So brand value was the first. The second was that it was what, you know, in a niche business, it was one of the few global uh, private companies, the other two being that were involved in wine at the time were Sotheby's and uh, Christie's. So I thought that was very unique mm -hmm. and there was a unique opportunity there. And then uh, the third was, it was a family business and it had been in the Capon family for three generations and it was run like a family business. So I thought there was a huge opportunity to um, take it from a family business and grow it into a medium-sized company. You know, the combination of uh, those three factors made it seem like a very unusual opportunity. And it, it really was one of those needle in the haystacks that, you know, people spend, you know, years and years trying to find that company, mm -hmm. uh, that private company that has a lot of potential. And I had actually spent five years looking for different companies like that, and it's extremely hard. So it was um, really incredible that, you know, that opportunity came up just from, you know, a reference, you know, as opposed to being out in the private equity market, actually. So historically, the wine industry, one built on a bedrock of traditions, has not been keen on adapting to new trends and technology, but the pandemic with its disruptive effects on the entire alcohol marketplace forced many winemakers and wine shops to reassess their business models. With the New York City wine shop closed, how did Acker modify its business model to get its wines into the hands of consumers? So we were very fortunate because, uh, and, and actually lucky, because one of the things that, that I did when I just had joined in in 2017 is I made a huge investment in both auction technology and a website that had, um, you know, that was state of the art for the, you know, the 21st century uh, for e-retailing. And we had, you know, invested millions of dollars and many years developing it. And we launched, we literally launched the e the new e-commerce website five months before the pandemic hit. Wow. And and we had developed right when I came a proprietary auction app. So in both instances, um we, we had the technology that allowed us to shift very, very quickly. And what we did was, you know, we closed obviously the store and the walk-in traffic slowed down. And we went to a complete online model and we had state-of-the-art technology to do it. So then what we did was we increased the digital marketing, um, digital advertising, as well as uh, the amount of email marketing we did and, and, and phone calls um, to our clients and uh, did a lot of Zoom wine tastings, both for, we have a very large corporate business where we supply wine to major companies. And we're, so we, end, you know, we, we now have 350 corporate clients and we were doing Zoom Christmas parties for them and, you know, sent every, all their employees a bottle of wine 
and then went over and discussed the wine and they had parties and it was just a transition to the digital world that we were very prepared for. You know, we, we had to add staff for delivery um, because delivery became the essential part, the warehousing and, uh, and the amount of, you know, delivery vans and people we have. It was interesting to be able to hire people remotely and, and, and get the vans and do everything and, and increase the, the warehouse staff during that period of time. But, you know, we were able to do it and our, our volumes went up dramatically. I mean, like 40%. It was just crazy. And the pandemic also forced many auction houses in general to radically change the way they conduct business. Many of them quickly switched to virtual auctions and wine auctions are a massive chunk of Acker's business. What changes did Acker have to make to the auction business? So, you know, it was interesting. We were, I'll just say this. So we're the number one, one wine auction house in the world. And right. we were already doing weekly online web auctions. We were doing our, our live auctions were hybrid auctions because I, I do think we have one of the largest, if not the largest global customer base. So we have people from all over the world bidding. So even though we would have something live in uh, New York or Delaware, w- when that went away, you know, the people that were used to bidding online with us and, and, you know, our app that I had mentioned previously has live video on it for people to see the auctioneer and be able to bid either on a website or, you know, it's a mobile app and it's, it's very easy to use. So our clients were really already used to the ability to do it. And, you know, when we had a lot traditionally, you know, there was a change going on anyway in the auction market where the in-room participation had already transitioned, I think, since I started to 20% uh, being people that were in the room to basically five to 8%. So most of the business was coming online, you know, through apps, through a virtual experience anyway with us. And I just think we were so ahead of the game on this that it didn't make a difference. The experience of, of spending time with your clients, you know, we hope our auctions are very different than your normal formal auctions. They're always at a restaurant. We serve an enormous amount of wine. So they're wine parties and auctions and we're known for that. So you know, it, it was a bit of a bummer not having the customer experience, but from a uh, from a, a financial standpoint and auction success standpoint, it made no difference. And quite frankly, as we've gone back post-COVID, we are doing less live events. We used to do one every month. We're just doing, you know, one or two a quarter, and we're doing uh, much smaller bidding parties with and, and things like that because you know just like remote work people didn't really appreciate that you could you could actually work remotely and be that productive and now we're in a hybrid world the same applies to the auction market and live versus virtual yeah and the pandemic has made people much more comfortable buying and selling wine online and many online wine auction houses also so both the seller base and the buyer base become younger. 
and more diverse and more global. Was that the same with Acker? Yes, I, I think we saw it more in retail than we 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 saw it online when you when you're specifically referring to a younger younger demographic. We saw it in retail as opposed. Um, we saw more younger people involved in the educational Zooms to learn about wine during the period of time, um, but it really translated more towards uh, the retail than it was the auction. There had been already a trend, uh, if you will, of, a, of an increase in the 30 to 45 year old range of uh, new entrants into the market over the last three or four years. Those demographics tend to be just like, you know, people in their twenties, much more computer and online savvy and used to conducting in a world like that. So we saw an increase in the amount of activity of existing customers in that demographic, we saw an enormous increase in retail in that demographic online buying. And those were for the live auctions. We did see, you know, like a 10% increase in the weekly web auctions. But, you know, that demographic really, really had a big impact on the increase that we saw in retail. With younger audiences coming in, did that also change what you offered? As a brand, right, we, we tend to be focused on fine and rare wine and higher quality wines, which are tend to be uh, more expensive. Like for instance, the average bottle price in our retail is $59, right? Uh, when, and, and that's intentional. You know, when I joined the company, I think it was $20. But my view um, strategically was that $10 bottles of wine, $15 bottles of wine, $20 bottle of wine, you, you see what's happening with Costco and, and the big chains mm -hmm. and they have these wines, they buy them in mass at a discount. And I, you know, the history of the company was a luxury brand and higher and finer things. So our, our price point has shifted. It's not to say we don't sell a lot of $20 wines and $25 wines, but we also sell a lot of $100, $150 bottles of wines um, in the store. In our fine and rare retail, our, you know, just to give people perspective, which is the majority of our business, the, the average dollar price, average dollar price of, of a bottle of wine is $1,000. So when, when it came to the online business, what we saw initially was uh, the younger generations who were, who, was learning, who were learning more about wine, buying $20, $30 bottles of wine to learn about wine and go through our, both our educational stuff and, uh, that we were providing as well as all the, the online activity. And they've, you know, as they've, found what they like, you know, and they've gotten more interested, you see a pattern of them stepping up the price point because those that, you know, there are people that just like, okay, I want to drink wine, you know, okay. 
and I like a good bottle and these are the three brands or something I like and I'll just buy them because I'll drink them. And then there are those that are really into get into wine, the various regions of the world, get very, you know, try a lot of different producers. And you see those people increasing the price point as over time. And those are the people that eventually become collectors. So I do think that takes more time, but um, we just did see an enormous amount of activity and new clients, you know, basically in retail, you know, from 25 to, to 45, it was just enormous, just enormous. I think we had, you know, I said our business volume was up uh, about 40%, but our new clients were up close to 50, right? And it was mostly that age range. So a couple of years ago, you launched an interesting market analytics site for wine investors. Could you talk about that? You know, what's unique about this tool and how it works and who it's for? When I, I joined, um, I had spent um, 30 years in financial services. And I was interested in learning about wine because as I said, you know, this was a business opportunity for me. I was not a wine collector at the time. So I wanted to learn more about wine, wine prices, producers, trends, and so on and so forth. And I was shocked to find that really there was nothing out there that was comprehensive um, for you to learn about wine prices. And, you know, the transparency was pretty weak uh, about wine prices. So um, Acker had um, 20 years worth of data and um, we went and cleaned the database uh, um, with the purpose of creating an online platform of you know, all our wine prices over the 20 year history of Acker. And then we put, and, and we want to make that accessible to uh, anybody interested in looking at wine prices and the history of wine prices and how it compared to other financial assets. But so um, we created that platform and, and really, to look at it, you know, we wanted to have the ability for people to look at wine the way they would look at the stock market. You could look at the stock market with general indices, um, and then there are specific industry in indices. And then beyond that, you could look at individual stocks within a, a, a sector. And um, we wanted to create the same thing for wine, which we ended up doing. We created 200 wine indices to classify wine into like industry sectors, if you will, and regions and producers so that people could easily, you know, focus on a particular producer or region and compare it to other ones in the world. And we created um, a very you know, if, if you will, Bloomberg-like capability for wine. And it's on the website. It's free. It's available to anybody that wants to study wine prices, study how 
various different producers perform over time, how different regions perform relative to each other. Anything you'd want to know about wine, you can do uh, on the Map Markets platform. And it's very, very comprehensive. There doesn't exist any tool in the market that has the history of information, the accuracy of the information, and the analytics, uh, the depths of analytics in the wine market right now. And people have started to, you know, like anything, there's always good copycats. We, you know, we started that trend and you start seeing some of our competitors, some people that are involved in wine data, the wine data business, you know, trying to come up with things to match what we have. But in my opinion, you know, just as a financial person, there's nothing, there's no platform that's better than ours as of yet. And from an investment standpoint, the best bottles of Burgundy or Bordeaux remain a far less volatile asset to own at this moment than many others, certainly stocks and bonds. So why is the performance of investment-worthy wine less rocky than stocks and bonds? For a number of reasons. First of all, there is a perpetual supply-demand imbalance in wine, uh, fine and rare wine, because one of the things that makes fine wine rare is that a lot of the production of these wines is small. So, you know, over time, people drink them as well. So, you know, you, you have one of these instances where um, you just have a dynamic where the, uh, the demand for wine, which, by the way, keeps increasing dramatically, you know, over the last few years, as more and more people understand it as a great investment asset. And so the demand keeps increasing and, you know, the supply is limited just generally, but because of climate change and the impact that that's having on the wineries and their production, you know, the supply is shrinking as well. It's a very unique dynamic for this asset class and people that buy it tend to hold it. They don't trade it. So you don't see the type of volatility you, you see in the, the ec equity markets where, you know, there's these huge sentiment changes based on like the, you know, the macroeconomic environment or geopolitical environment. You don't get that in wine. It's sort of a, a steady thing. So this year, for instance, you know, wine is flat generically and there are some sectors that are down like 5%. But, you know, last year, the wine market was up significantly. And basically, it's one of the only asset classes that didn't give back 2021's gains. I mean, it maintained all of 2021's gains. And, you know, it was interesting because in, in the beginning, the first quarter of 2022, the wine market continued to go up. Mm -hmm. So all that really happened in 2022 was in the second quarter, gains it had in the first quarter, it went down. But as you know, the NASDAQ was down 30% at one, one point, the S&P was down 20% at some point, and, and wine was just firm. And it's been like that historically. I mean, it's seven times less volatile over time than the stock market. And 
it is the second best returning asset class besides global stocks out of any any other asset class. It, it has unique characteristics and people are understanding that. And then the final thing is that the market, the, the auction market, for instance, you know, is about half a billion dollars a year. So it's not on a relative basis, this enormous market. The secondary market is about $2 billion a year of fine and rare wine turning over. So if you, you think about the, the, the available supply turning over in a year in uh, fine and rare wine, it's somewhere between two and a half to $3 billion. It's not an enormous, relative to other asset classes, it's just not an enormous one. And, it's, and people are realizing it's one of the best ones. So, you know, we expect the same relative outperformance of wine, you know, especially with climate change going on and the amount of people, uh, new, new entrants into the market in terms of investment. We, we're starting to see people that are not drinkers of wine and collect just starting to start, start wine funds just for the purpose of investment and giving people access to investment vehicles to access wine. So the demand keeps increasing. And, you know, again, the supply is limited on its own. And if climate change keeps affecting production, you know, this the supply and demand imbalance will just keep getting worse for new production, which makes the older productions even more valuable. So that's that's the story with the wine. So Acker now accepts digital currencies for payments at wine auctions and its New York retail store. How does that whole process work? And, you know, did it stem from the increase in younger wine collectors and auction participants? It's interesting. No, it, it, it actually stemmed from some international client requests, um, you know, a number of years ago. And what we did was we just found a, uh, a payment processor that was involved in the cryptocurrency world at, that was willing to take all the crypto risk. And there are a number of them now where you just give them a US dollar invoice and the customer deals with the uh, cryptocurrency with the payment processor and we just get dollars, right? So we, we, you know, we did that early on I think over time, what happened is regulations started to increase in international countries and the activity, uh, once the regulation went up, started to decrease. You know, for the last few years, as the crypto market, you know, became more and more in vogue, we made more and more efforts to get involved in that world, either through NFTs, blockchain. But I have to tell you, the, the reality of it is that there really has, uh, to my astonishment, been very little interest in people wanting to pay for wine in cryptocurrency. And it was really is interesting. I went to lunch with one of the the leading crypto trading firms and investment firms in the country because it was a bit of a puzzle to me 
And it was one of the most enlightening conversations I had. And what they stressed to me was that people in the crypto world are heavily invested in the crypto world and everything in that universe. And what they're not interested in doing is crossing over the digital world into the physical world. Hmm. That that is like for the, the believers in this market and the idea of having a decentralized digital world, they don't want to cross over. And you see a lot of products and NFTs coming out from name brands. It's not clear to me at this point how successful that really is. You know, we've done a lot of marketing. We did do an NFT, one of the first. And, yeah, can you, yeah, you know, definitely it, talk about that? So we did one, we did the, the, the first NFT with one of the top producers in the world, uh, Comte Liche Belair. And what he did was he had nine vineyards and he had his newest production, the 2019 vintage. And what he did is he always keeps the first bottle for himself, but he auctioned the second bottle and he did a video tasting note of the bottle of wine and, uh, and talked about the vintage in, in of that, that particular vineyard, because there were nine of them. We sold that with the bottle. And they went for about three times the normal price, but it, it was interesting. None, nobody has asked to trade them. They've just held them and they own the wine, right? So it was... It was novelty, and we wanted to see whether we could pick up on that by doing NFTs on special bottles of wine. And it really, you know, it never really took off. There are some companies uh, like overseas that are working with producers to go directly by, you know, selling the concept of it being an NFT on the bottle and then having a digital signature for authentication. I can't tell how successful they are or not. I go on what's known as EtherScan, which monitors the activity uh, that you can see on a blockchain to see how much activity there is. Um, and I don't see a lot. So I'm, I'm still not clear whether in terms of just NFTing a physical bottle or trying to sell wine for digital currencies, that that is the avenue that is ultimately going to be successful in the wine industry. I think the, the, the area that blockchain will be very successful in, in wine is in the infrastructure uh, and the operations related to it. So it's everything from authentication to shipping, to payment, uh, processing and tracking and making things seamlessly, seamless globally. I just don't know whether I believe that blockchain as a forum for selling wine will be successful or not. We have tried and so far it has not to my dismay because I'm a very big believer in blockchain. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that's been our experience so far. So, you know, right now I see a lot of marketing, but not a lot of substance. How do you see the fine wine market playing out the rest of this year? You know, I, I think that, you know, we're getting to a period of time where the uns uncertainty of the macroeconomic environment is becoming less uncertain. The, the Federal Reserve, it, everybody uh, is aware of their fight against inflation and they're going to do what they need to do. You know, we're already in an economic slowdown. I think the markets are, you know, just a few months away from completely discounting it all. And I think that in that environment, the wine market stays steady. And I think when the markets start picking up again, uh, I think wine will start going up again. But I don't see wine going down. So Irv, my final question is the luxury item question, which I ask all my guests. If you were stranded on a deserted island and you can only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation or water transportation or anything that requires mobile service. It's just you on that island all by yourself, surrounded by sand, palm trees, miles and miles of water. What would that one luxury item you would like to have with you? Well, I guess it would be Wagyu beef. <laughs> and if it wasn't, if it wasn't a food item, it would be, if it wasn't a food item, it would be a Toto toilet. That, that, that's a different answer, I assume, than you normally get. <laughs> yeah, I did not, ex did not expect that how you went from Wagyu beef to a toilet. So, but they're both oh, luxury items. A, yeah, they're both luxury items. One's food, which, you know, if you're on a deserted island, you have plenty of water, so you'll have plenty of fish. So I right. figured I'd go for beef. And then if it couldn't be a food item, it's like, you know, it's either something that's shelter oriented, like a, you know, like a bed or something else. But I just thought having uh, a total toilet would be a unique thing to be on an island. Irvin Goldman, CEO of Acker. Thank you so much for joining me on the luxury item. Thank you for having me. It's, it was fun. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.